Hey yo, what's up world? This is DJ JS1 of the legendary Rocksteady crew. And right now, you're listening to The Library with my man, Tim Einenkel. Strictly the real hip-hop. Peace. My next guest is a DJ, a member of the Rock City crew, a manager, has run record labels, a radio host. He seems to know most, if not all, aspects of the music industry. Curly is the host of Rap Is Out of Control on Sirius XM and manages acts like Heavy Metal Kings, La Coca Nostra, Ill Bill, and many more. He's DJ Eclipse, and I want to welcome him to the library with Tim Monaco. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Under the influence of things, I bring the drug musical shooting you up with dope, beautifully composed, narcotic, and diabolical. You're like a crackhead prostitute without the loot, but it's the music that's responsible. Drug music, therapeutic city user, not fixed. Slam dance to it, my drug music. So, obviously, from the beginning, why did you get involved with hip hop music, and then what kind of drew you to it, and then what do you want? Uh, what do you want it to serve for you? And what do you want to serve for it? Uh, initially, it was it was hearing the music and having it captivate me. You know, the first record hearing I heard was uh, Rapper's Delight. And I heard it at a school party. I was in the fifth grade. And one of the kids in class brought it into the party and played it. And I had never heard that before. You know, prior to that, I was totally like Casey Kasem, top 40, listening to Hall Notes and, you know, whatever else came on the radio and so when that came on it was like wow like this is crazy like this is totally different and this is something that it just i don't know something about it clicked with me and uh enough that i actually wanted to own the record you know so that was you know the first hip-hop record i bought that was the first record really i bought outside of like records that were kind of handed down to me so it just is something about the music that spoke to me and i knew it was something special and so you wanted to know more about the music and so you just start kind of investigating and finding you know trying to find out stations on the ground college stations that would play you know the same type of music and so you just find out what else is out there and so it just became part of what i would do you know which was find the music and then along with the music comes the culture you know which is the you know the break-in and the the emceeing and djing and, and and the graph and so um it was just like it was a movement and it felt like a movement. And so it just took me over where I was just like at the age of, you know, 14, I decided that I actually wanted to start DJing. So prior to that, I was actually buying records just to kind of collect them, you know, the same way you would collect comic books or whatever. It was like, I just bought the records and they'd, they'd be in my collection. And it wasn't until I was 14 where I was like, all right, you know, I tried my hand at like all the elements of hip hop. And I was like, DJing really seems the most special to me. And, um, I kind of just would watch some of the people in my neighborhood that were older than me that were doing stuff. And I kind of like, you know, studied them and picked up some notes from them. And then that was, um, why I became a DJ. And, and, and then as far as just like the initial process of getting into hip hop is more of like, you just kind of, ex- you're, you're experiencing it. You're in the middle of it. You're, you're doing it, you're doing it. And then once you do it long enough, it's like, okay, okay, let me now contribute to it. You know, let me now, let me now be an artist. Let me now try to make records like the ones I'm hearing. And then it went from that step to then, you know, paying your dues, 
walking up the, the, the ladder, you know, step by step, getting another notch, another notch to the point where my life now is, is based on kind of like uh, upholding hip hop culture, you know, and making sure that um, as far as I'm concerned, that it's done right as far as what I can actually put my hands on, you know, so it's, that's, that's my, my duty here. Uh, you mentioned that you tried the other elements. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you remember the first element you tried besides DJing, uh, that you thought maybe I mean, every, every, everything was kind of, you know, at the same time, it was all, um, DJing was probably the last thing just because I didn't have the equipment, you know, so it was, I never really tried to rap, but I would, I would write rhymes. Right. I would just sit there and write rhymes. Um, but graffiti and breaking were definitely like the, the first two elements that I kind of like would do. And I sucked at that graph. So, I mean, I kind of like kind of gave that up, but breaking was, you know, I mean, everyone, we all, you know, all the kids in my hood were breaking. So we were all just breaking and then, you know, we'd go to, you go to school and you see other kids that are like from different neighborhoods and like you, you, you kind of pee people out and who's good, who's not. And, and so breaking was a big thing for us. That was probably like, you know, what we did the most. Um, and then it just became a point where I had the records and it was like, you know what, like I'm going to start saving up to be a DJ. And so that became the final element for me <laughs> and the one I stuck with. <laughs> um, what was your, I just curious, at the age of 14, what was the... I mean, you were in Rhode Island, so like, yes. what, what was the, the I guess the support system in terms of uh, kind of nurturing your art? Sure. Um, was it your teachers? Was it your parents? Was it just fellow kids in the you know in the community? It was community. It was yeah. It was it was as far as like my um, where I lived in my neighborhood. I was kind of like the person to bring the music to everyone else. You know, everyone kind of like would look to me to find out what was new. I mean, I'd be at the record store every week buying stuff. But as far as who was influencing me and supporting me was the kids that were I was finding on the radio or in school. You know, there was um, these kids, Magical Four, that were local that I didn't realize were actually local at the time because they were playing their music on the radio on the college shows. And so, you know, there was a couple of different college shows, RIU, BRU, URI. So uh, there was DOM. There's a few different shows that would ha- play the music so I, you listen to the music at night and then again like you catch the names you know and so like you know this kid buck dj bucket you know he was one of the, the guest djs every once in a while and he would always like cut and scratch and then i found out that bucket was the dj for the group magical four so that that right there was just like oh wait so so buckets from here then that must mean that they're from here and sure enough i ended up going to school when I got older, but three of them were, you know, went to went to the same school as me. And so um, I uh, became semi-cool with them, more so with some of their, their cousins. And uh, I'd hang out with them, and then we'd go over to their house, and I'd just watch what they did. You know, I'd go to shows. They, they would perform. They'd open up for, like, if, if Grandmaster Flash came to town or if Dougie Fresh came to town, they'd be the group to open up for them. So I'd watch them perform. I'd watch the DJ Bucket get busy at, like, USA Skating Rink. Uh, or the living room, or like if, wherever he played, I'd, I'd watch, I'd watch, I'd watch, and I would just study. And so that really was what made me want to do it, was just like watching what they did. And then I just, you know, I had a paper route, and I ended up getting two paper routes because I took over someone else's, and I, I would just spend all my money on music. And then I just decided I was going to save it to buy equipment. Between Christmas, birthdays, and the money I made from the paper route, I just went ahead and um and, and started buying equipment. And so once I had like a full setup, I was that was that I was that was officially a DJ at that point. So how okay, so how did you get to from DJing uh to 
to to Wild Pitch Records. DJing, I I, I became I, I had my first setup when I was in Rhode Island, but then shortly after I got that, I probably had my full my full setup at the beginning of eighty five. By the end of eighty five, I was moving down south. So I went down to South Carolina the whole time from eighty five until ninety two while I was in South Carolina is when I actually kind of made my name as a DJ. So I took whatever knowledge I had from up north, moved down south, put it to work, and then started DJing whatever spots I could do, clubs, you know, this, that, did some radio, all that stuff. So made my name down there, and then that led me to um, working at a record store. Working at the record store, I actually started meeting some of the artists that would come through on, like, promotional retail runs. I met MC Search from Third Base there. And um, he actually was just getting ready to release his solo album, Return of the Product. And a friend of mine who I had met in South Carolina, T-Ray, Todd Ray, had produced half of Search's album that had yet to come out. But Todd had already sent me it, so I knew what all the songs were. So I just mentioned Todd's name, started talking about the music. And so me and Search started building, and, and he liked the beats. I was playing them that I had made. And we just we just we just kicked it, you know. We just we we hit it off really good. So um, he invited me to come to a couple of shows local while he was still on the tour. And then um, next thing you know, I was moving up to New York to stay with him, and and produce and DJ for him. And um, we did that for a couple of years until he kind of put the mic down temporarily and decided that he wanted to do you know play the businessman so he actually was offered a job at wild pitch records um, as vp so he took the job and then what he did was he had uh, set up a meeting for me to meet with Stu fine to fill the retail position since i had a retail background from working at the record stores and so that's what i did i went in there i met Stu fine a couple times for a couple interviews and we hit it off and um i was hired and so that's how i got two wild pitch from DJing. <laughs> so when, you, when you're at Wild Pitch, I mean, you, you read your bio, right? And it's, it goes, you saw releases from Gangstar, you know, OC, uh, Main Stores, Lord Finesse, Ultramagnet MCs, Chill Rob, Rob G, mm-hmm. and much more. Do you remember, like, the first record you heard while being there that kind of just completely blew you away and then kind of maybe took what you thought rap music was to, like, a whole another level? It would have to be, you know, the OC record, you know, because... Everything prior was already out. You know, most of those acts you just mentioned were already out before we even got there. So when we got there, uh, the main source uh, album without Lodge Professor with Mikey D was was what they had just put out. So that was out, and we were working that. And they they had an Entice project that they were working on, um, but there really wasn't much else they had ready to go. And so... What Search did when he came in was was try to bring in a whole bunch of new talent. And OC was one of the artists that um, he brought in immediately. And we had a bunch more that we had kind of like in demo deals that we were working with to see if, if they were going to make something that was going to be, you know, quote unquote, good enough for the label. So OC, you know, we were there for, you know, we, we would go to the sessions and hear the music and hear how it was coming along. And like, you know, and, and, and we knew that that album was dope. I mean, there was joints on there that we you know really liked. And so... I don't know if I'd say we, you know, we knew it was going to be a classic album or it was going to change anything, but just the fact that we knew it was quality music, that was something definitely we were proud to have been part of while we were at uh, Wild Pitch. So there's a chance I'd probably be all over the place with my timeline, mm-hmm. uh, but I want to go to 97, okay. 1997. Yep. Um, Crazy Legs uh, mm-hmm. invited you to join the Rocksteady crew. Correct. Um, 
what, when he did that, what did that mean to you personally? But for listeners, what's the importance of the Rock City crew in terms of this overall hip-hop culture? Right. Well, I mean, it, it's it's one and the same kind of an answer. You know, growing up, again, like loving hip-hop, obviously you, you, you research and find out who's who, you know, and it's like, and, and the cream of the crop of all the groups, you know, you had like Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five who were like the kings of, you know, making records, you know, in that early 80s era. Um, and then when you turn on the TV or movies to see who's representing Breakin', you know, B-Boying, it was the Rocksteady crew, you know what I'm saying? They were the ones that you saw more than anyone else outside of New York. Cause keep in mind, I was in Rhode Island, so they were the ones that, that transcended out of New York. Um, so for me, Rocksteady crew always meant the epitome of B-Boy crews. You know, they were they were top of their game. So fast forward to 97, you know, I, I had met Legs at some point in the 90s, and you know, I always would go to the Rocksteady anniversaries, and so we just kind of became cool. And so he had started inviting me to DJ at uh, a bunch of the, the parties he would throw called Breakbeats. So I would be one of the DJs on a lot of the events, and then just from doing that, for a year or two, whatever, he just one day pulled me to the side and was like, you know, would you be down to join Rocksteady Crew? And I was, it was like a, it, it was like I had two feelings. One was like, that's incredible. But then the other feeling was like, and I told him this, I was like, well, I love to, but, you know, I do have, I have nonfiction. I have this group I'm with. I, I constantly DJ with them. I'm on the road a lot. So I just don't know what you expect from me in terms of like, you know, being there because I have other obligations and he's like nah he's like as long as it's not like another b-boy crew he's like you're good I'm like like, count me in man I'm down so it's like you know that's what it meant to me then was to be part of an organization that to me represented the best b-boys you know b-girls in the world moving from that point forward what Rocksteady crew means on a much bigger scale is it's not just about them being the best crew. It's about them also upholding hip hop culture and not even just culture, but community. You know, it's like, if you look at what crazy legs does from, from a day to day basis, like you'll see him online posting about, you know, like right now he's talking about, you know, Puerto Rico and like what he can do to raise funds to help out Puerto Rico. And he goes down there and he's trying to bring like water filters and he's trying to get money down there and he's trying to do all these things. That's what Rocksteady is about, and 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 he started this new organization called Rocksteady for Life, you know, and that's 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 what it's all about. It's all about you know being positive with what we love, and so we take the culture, we take the music, and we take our roles or our status and use it to benefit other people. Now, within the culture, you know, we do the Rocksteady anniversaries every year. It's a free event for people to come out to, and we make sure that we 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 lace the lineup with old school, new school mid-school, you know what I'm saying? We, we, we have DJs, MCs, um, depending on where the venue is, some, we'll do like B-Boy events. And then we try to do like some live graph stuff as well. So we try to incorporate all the elements. But it's just about letting people know like it's a culture. It's not just about what you hear on commercial radio. You know, there is, it's a family vibe. This is all, we were all raised on hip hop, you know. So we want people to know that there is still good stuff out there and there is still meaning to to what we look at as being important you know so that's what that's what the rock crew is it's, it's not just a b-boy organization it's a hip-hop organization that supports the culture you've done many ways to try to like show what's still out there what's good out there right. you've, you've done radio mm-hmm. you done you're doing you're doing serious now but you also did the halftime show right? right so in 2000 when i was in 
junior in college. Okay. Uh, I started my own radio show uh, because I heard Black Star's album, and I was like, I got to play this for the masses, but, you know, whatever. Right. Uh, and then, then that got me into, like, listening to, quote-unquote, underground hip-hop and, right. you know, like, a lot of going to undergroundhiphop.com to see what's, you know. Sure. Um, when you started your show... Mm-hmm. Why did you Why did you start it personally and being in a New York market? One of the the main reasons I even became a DJ. Period was actually to expose music. I, I enjoy exposing music to my friends. I I enjoyed putting them up on stuff they they weren't familiar with. So that was what really turned me on to becoming a DJ. So while I was a DJ, when I worked at the record store, it was always about turning people on to new artists that they didn't know. That continued on throughout being a DJ. I never really wanted to be the jukebox DJ that just played whatever everyone wanted to hear. I wanted to get, I wanted to feed them what I thought they needed to hear, and so that's been my my taste the whole time I've been alive. Is is that? And so radio to me is the perfect opportunity to do that and to and to play what I feel is missing or needs to have light shed on it. And so. I started doing some radio when I was still in South Carolina, like 89. I was doing like a mix show on, on the commercial station down there for a little bit. And then when I came to New York, you know, I'd always hang out with DJ Riz up on uh, BAU in Long Island when he was doing his radio show with Wildman Steve. And then got cool with um, Stretch Armstrong. So I started hanging out up there on their show on KCR and then became cool enough with Stretch that whenever he started getting real busy doing club gigs and out of town stuff, he'd ask me to fill in for him. So I started filling in for Stretch on the the KCR show, and I, I did that, you know, throughout the whole time that they had the show from, like, I was probably on the show from maybe, like, 94, 95, up until, like, you know, 98 or something like that. So during that time, it's like I started making a name for myself in New York by playing on that show. And so then what happened was an opportunity came up you know, for me and Riz to get a, a slot on NYU. And so we we took it and we went and we started doing that show because, again, it's like that's kind of what we always believed in, you know, is that a mix show and us as DJs, it's our responsibility to play good music that we feel is good music to let people know what's out there. And so that's, that's always been what it's about is exposing, you know, new music to people. Back then, what were the, the programming decisions like in terms of... Uh... You're in, you know, you're in the New York market, so mm-hmm. it's a pretty big market uh, and pretty competitive market as well, right? right. Um, so when you're up against like the Hot 97s mm-hmm. um, and you're not playing the commercial stuff, right? right is it, was there at all ever pressure for you guys to? Never, because we were never in, we were never in that type of environment. You know, everything we were always college radio, and college radio was always anti-commercial. I mean, most of these college stations they specifically don't want you playing anything that commercial radio would touch. So it's it's always been in, in anything goes format. You know. On, on everything I've done. Now that I'm on Sirius XM, this is probably the biggest platform I've been on where you would think something like that might take effect, but it doesn't. You know, and even for here, it's like they specifically have shows like mine or have shows like DJ Premier's to balance out what they do during the rest of the week and during the rest of the day. So it's like they want me and Prem to play alternative hip-hop compared to what they have to play during the day and so we don't have anything any handcuffs on us at all it's just like go you know do you you know what I'm saying they don't they don't approve our guests they don't approve our playlist it's just kind of like as long as we run a good show they're happy so the halftime show was eight, was on air for 18 years yes were there any like i mean off the top of your head many moments that 
you were like your wow moments where you're like, I can't believe we either one debuted that artist, look at where they are now, or did that on air. Yeah, I mean, it's a, a bunch of stuff. I mean, it's, it's for me, I think the um, the my highlight moments are always the anniversary shows we did because we made those like a big party, and so we would, you know, it, it kind of grew from first. It was just like. I think me and Riz maybe playing some instrumentals and then inviting up a bunch of MCs, which then grew to like, okay, let's forget about us playing records. Let's actually bring up producers to bring up their drum machines and samplers and actually make beats and then have more MCs. And then it became, let's get more producers. So then we ended up having anniversaries that had sometimes between three to four different producers and we'd have like 30 to 40 MCs come through. And it was like, you know, we always try to get like the who's who of hip hop. So you never knew who was actually going to show up or not. And it was just, you know, everyone just just rhyming. And to me, beats it all comes down to beats and rhymes. Forget the branding, forget the marketing, forget what you look like, what your video's like, how many records you sold. It's about can you spit and how dope are the beats. And so that's what our anniversaries were about. And so we always just had, you know, the most fun doing those because it was like you just sit back and hear like dope beat after beat and dope rhyme after rhyme. And and being part of those was, was definitely my highlights over the years. Um, but as far as like watching people that came through that blew up, I mean, you know, Eminem, you know, was someone that we had on when he was uh, like just just signing to uh, Aftermath to, to Dre. Then you had um, Kanye, who actually wasn't even a guest that we invited. We had invited Rhymefest up and Rhymefest brought Kanye with him. And um, I remember Kanye being mad cocky and was just like, you know, talking you know saying yeah i just produced this joint for jay-z and, blah, 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 and this that and the third so it's like you know just going back and listening to some of these shows and and hearing like you know how they were then and where they are now kind of a thing um 50 cent was another one that uh that came through that came through when he was like bef- way before he did his, his dre deal so it was, it was it was good seeing you know all these people when they were in their infancy so to speak you know but we also you know our show started in 98 so our era was after the Stretch and Bob era, you know, which theirs ended in 98, you know what I'm saying? So it's like, you know, when you watch their documentary, like they were in the era where they had the Nas's and the Wu-Tang's and, you know, and, and, and Jay-Z's and Big L's, and we came after that. So it's like we had the Kanye's, the, you know, the M's, the 50 Cent's. We had like the next generation kind of, of acts to come through, um, as, well, as well as we still had those same type people coming through, but those are the ones that came through during our era that went on to be you know bigger bigger stars earlier you mentioned a non-fiction mm-hmm. uh, 1995 non-fiction is formed yep. uh you read your bio on allmusic.com it says a paraphrase but eclipse eventually moved over to manage or work at fat beach records mm-hmm. for someone who looks at someone on the outside perspective a fan a kid who reads that right they would say well why would someone who's with a hip-hop group move over to work at fat beats what's the well what's the importance of fat beats or mm-hmm. what's the importance of fat beat record in terms of uh in, independent hip-hop artists and underground hip-hop artists and also in terms of being a record store which we don't really have yeah, you know, exactly. anymore yeah well there's a couple of things with that first off i never left nonfiction uh to go to fat beats actually it, it was the other way around um but what happened was when nonfiction nonfiction formed in 95, but we didn't put out our album until 2002. 
So we we were just kind of grinding, doing the New York indie scene, you know, putting out singles. Um, what had happened though was nonfiction formed while Wild Pitch was still open. But then what what happened was Wild Pitch closed the summer of '95, and so my initial thought was, all right, I'm gonna go get another label job. So I'll just kind of you know hang out during the summer and and collect this unemployment, and then like once that runs out, I'll go get another label job. Meanwhile, Fat Beats was a record store that had been open now for one year, which I was familiar with because that was my job to be on top of retail stores. And so I was already supporting them the first year they were open by just going by and buying my music from them and stuff like that. Then once Wild Pitch closed, the store had kind of made enough noise from their hustle and as well as Stretch and Bob shouting them out every week that they were getting enough clientele that they were getting busier and busier. And so the owner, Joe, had asked me if I would be able to help him out on the weekends because he was working like seven days a week. So I was like, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll, I'll help you out on the weekends, you know, thinking again, like this is going to be temporary and, you know, whatever. So that was it. Once I got in there, it I never left. It was like I was there on the weekends, and then next thing you know, I was there during the week. And then, you know, a year into it, the business exploded where we actually opened up a new location. We moved from a, a small basement location to a second-floor storefront um, on, uh, on 6th Avenue. And so um, it became a, a phenomenon because – Fat Beats, it had all the right elements. You know, you had people like me working there. You had people like Stretch and Bob supporting the store. And you had the store supporting the scene. So you had records that Stretch and Bob were playing that were independent that you couldn't really find. And so we made it our job to get those records and bring them into the store. So basically, Fat Beats became the hub for everything hip-hop and that was also something that surprisingly enough wasn't around in new york city you had stores that carried hip-hop but there was no hip-hop stores rock and soul carried other kind of music dance music house music reggae whatever plus they sold you know equipment and everything else beach street same thing it's like they, they carried different types of music they sold washing machines and dryers in there it's like there wasn't one record store that was just hip-hop you know, so Fat Beats became the first store to be just hip hop. And so we focused, you know, at that time it was just vinyl. So it was like we made sure we had all the dopest vinyl in there. And then we also went out to make sure we found all the independent vinyl that was out, which was only a handful of stuff at that time. As soon as Fat Beats exploded, we decided we're not going to um, have artists wait to get deals to get pressed to then bring them in. We're going to press the stuff ourselves. So we started Fat Beast Distribution, and we also started reaching out to artists and letting them know, hey, stop waiting for a record deal. Let's just press it up ourselves and put it out there. And so Fat Beast really got behind the movement, you know, and then you had people like Bobito starting Fondulum Records. You had people like Stretch Armstrong starting Dolo Records. So now these guys who were in positions of power were, were starting their own labels. So everyone was starting a label, you know, snatching up talent and putting out good music. And so that's when the indie scene in New York really started booming, when you had nonfiction, arsonists, juggernauts, company flow, natural elements. You know, you had the DJ crews like um, Executioners and, and Fifth Platoon, and, you know, then the Allies came around later. So it became a movement, you know, from everyone being into the same stuff, kind of doing every everyone was kind of working separately fat beats became kind of the hub to bring everyone together and say hey we actually have a movement here and let's all just start doing shows together and let's let's you know let's make something happen so that's really when you start you start seeing like 96 into 97 all these groups starting to pop off in new york 
Was that the original plan of Fat Beats? Did did they? Did are you understanding is that they like Joe wanted this to happen, or was it just more of kind of a? He wanted to be successful. I don't think outside of that that he knew what it was going to turn into. He just wanted to have a dope store, and then I think it's kind of like one of those things where as you start going along, and you start seeing how things are going, it's like, hey, you know, let's start a distribution company because we know good music and we know all the artists, you know. And then it's like, hey, let's see if we can do this in L.A. You know, hey, let's see if we can do this in Europe. Let's see if we can do this down south. And so it just became one of those things where it was more of a trial and everything, you know, just based on the success of what we were feeling in New York. What do you think the the closing of Fat Beats did for, I guess, the independent scene? The the closing of Fat Beats was um, very much a sign of how we all look at things now when you look at like you know um social media you know everyone's social networks how no one into really no one really physically interacts anymore it's all you know sending each other texts or sending each other tweets or you know um facebook posts it's like you know you don't even call your, your friends to find out how they're doing you just read their updates on facebook and so that is what the closing of fat beats meant is the is the changing of the guard to that world be you know whereas prior it was let's meet up at fat beats you know i'll meet you at fat beats after work i'll meet you at fat beats after school i'll meet you at fat beats you know blah 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 so everyone would come through fat beats and it wasn't just about people coming through to buy records it was coming to hang out you know and like we would have tons of of cypher sessions that would be between the people that work there and people that would come to hang out, you know? So it was like, it was just a hub of, of people mingling and wanting to be part of the scene uh, as well as people wanting to watch part of the scene, you know? So when it closed, it just, you know, the, the, everyone felt like, you know, they lost a relative, you know, because like they knew that no more were they going to have that location where they were going to be able to go and hang out and, and see and meet the people. And so it, Again, it's just kind of a, a telling tale of the sign of like you know how technology had really taken over everything. You mentioned uh, 2002 when mm-hmm. Nonfiction dropped their then debut album. Yep. Um, it was uh, you also left Fat Beats to co-run Uncle Howie yes, Records, correct? Um, with uh, with Ill Bill. Mm-hmm. Um, when the future is now is dropped. Uh, and you did mention uh, that it, the reason why it took so long to do it. Um, what was your role in the album? But also, sound-wise, error-wise, how how do you think how different do you think it sounded dropping in two thousand two versus ninety five when the group came first established? When we came out in ninety five, you know, we started by doing demos, and then we started leaking vinyl singles. And then we started trying to get deals, you know, and we got deals and we got deals that we ended up losing, you know, for one reason or the other, whether it was on our choice or the label's choice. So we went through a couple of different transitions. So here we go from 95 to 2002. By the time 2002 came around, we then looked back at our earliest work and said, there's no way we're putting, you know, I Shot Reagan and Five Burrows and Four W's on this album because they're so outdated at this point. So we took whatever the most recent music was, which was like, you know, like black helicopters and stuff that, that we did in like the late nineties, as opposed to the mid nineties. And we said, we're going to keep this stuff, but we need to do, you know, more newer stuff. And then also as we had money for budgets, it also allowed us to work with people that we were fans of, you know, so it, it allowed us to pay for a premiere beat. It allowed us to pay for a Pete rock beat. You know, it allowed us to pay for a few large professor beats. So it became us, 
you know, not just working with with in-house people, but actually going out there and making the album that we wanted to make. And so um, most of the musical decisions was the groups in terms of like, you know, Bills, The Box and Gore-Texes, you know, what, who they wanted to work with. And I, I, even at that point, I was kind of playing the, the, the manager facilitator of like, all right, well, let me reach out to this guy and let me reach out to that guy and get the, get the beats and stuff. And, um, and then, you know, they would take the beats, they'd listen to them, pick the ones they wanted, they'd write the rhymes to them, come up with the concepts, and then if there was something they wanted scratches on, they'd tell me, okay, we want scratches on this one. And some things I came up with the ideas for scratches, some things they told me what they wanted scratched. And so that's kind of how we put the album together. And it was just, again, like once it was done, we kind of looked at it like, you know, like, wow, like we actually, you know, ended up using a great list of producers and, and really made like you know we were really happy with what we ended up putting out you know so were you all when when the album was created were you were all four of you guys in the studio together at all uh, not all the time usually usually i'd say those guys were mostly in the studio together i was probably the least involved there because i also live the, the furthest away they the studio we built was basically in their neighborhood um, so they were actually able to kind of get there quick and easy. I had to take like four trains to get there. So for me, it was like, I'm going when I have to go <laughs> you know, as much to, to go hang out. So, uh, I wasn't there as much as they were, but, uh, I was there when I needed to be. I want to quickly jump back to 95, mm-hmm. um, nonfiction signs with Geffen records. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems that reading up on you guys that you and talking to you you guys kind of had the choice of the letter in terms of labels to sign to mm-hmm. but geffen was the i don't know if we say we had the, the full choice like that but there was um that was definitely the best you know the best option the best deal um you know search was down with nonfiction at the time and search was a good businessman you know he was definitely was you know he, he was a good good promo guy he, he knows how to talk a good game so he got us a good deal from from Geffen, and um, we took that deal. And I, I I think the problem with that was just that I think they might have been looking for the next you know rendition of third base when you know we were kind of like the furthest thing from that. You know, whereas third base was like dope but funny. You know, we were kind of like dope but serious. You know, kind of right. so to speak. It's like you know we were kind of like. We weren't political, but people used to call us that just because we talked about subjects that, like, were controversial and stuff like that, you know. So, you know, we were a mix somewhere between, like, P.E., Mob Deep, and Wu-Tang, you know, like, grimy, but, like, with drop, drop jewels, stuff like that. And so it, I think the stuff, when we, like, again, like, when we made records like I Shot Reagan and we turned it into the label, and they're like, you can't put this out, and, you know, and it's just like, no, well, we can. Of course we can, you know, so... It just it, it was starting to become clear that like what they want and what we want were two different things, and so that's why it just didn't work out with them. Let's fast forward to today. Mm-hmm. The halftime show ended in 2016. Yes, um, you're currently the host of Rap Is Out of Control on SiriusXM. Mm-hmm. One, when did the show start? But also, was it something that you pitched the idea to Sirius? They came to you. How did that go about? The Sirius show uh, actually came about um, by Premier DJ Premier has his show live from headquarters which has been on longer than my show's been on and i don't even know exactly when my show started i don't know why (laughs) i don't have an exact start well i'll tell you why i don't have an exact start date but with premiere it was a similar situation how it was with me and stretch premiere hit me up like yo um i'm you know i'm gonna be out of town on tour for a lot for a long period of time 
and I need someone to fill in for me. And there's really no one else I can trust but you. I know what you do for halftime. I know you're capable. You have the skills. You know the music. Would you be down to fill in? I'm like, of course. So I started filling in for him up here. And then through that, I actually met some of the people that worked up here who actually were fans of my show on NYU. And so it, was, it just became one of those things where they liked what I was doing here. They liked what I was doing at NYU. And then once they themselves had the power to actually make decisions here, they reached out to me and said, hey, would you want your own show up here? So I was like, yeah, I'll show. I'll, I'll, I'll take that. And so um, what happened was when I actually started, I, I think they offered me the gig before they actually offered me the date. And so it was like, all right, you know, we're going to we're gonna get your show. And then it just took forever to, to finally kind of put it through. And then once they finally put it through, it was the same week I was leaving for like a two-month tour with nonfiction or La Coca Nostra, whatever. I forget which one, which group it was. So now I'm like starting a new mix show and I'm not going to be here for two months. So I ended up having to like record each show while on tour. Like after one of the shows, I would I'd bring in, I had my turntables and mixer with me on the tour. I'd bring the stuff into the hotel room. I'd set it up like on the bathroom sink and then like just record, you know, a mix for like two hours, three hours. And I'd sit back and edit it all. And like the next day, as we drive to the next city for the next show, I'd be editing the show and make sure it's like exactly like a two hour you know, length. And then once I had it done, I'd have to ha- I'd have to pull over. I'd have to have whoever's driving pull over off the highway. We'd have to find a hotel. We'd drive into the hotel parking lot. If I could grab a Wi-Fi signal from the parking lot, I would. If I couldn't, I would then get out of the van. I'd make them wait in the van for me. I'd go in the hotel lobby, sit there, get their Wi-Fi, and upload the mix to Sirius, and then get back in the van and continue driving to the rest of the tour. So I had to do that for two months straight. So then I, then I come back and then um, kept doing the show. And then what happened, and I don't think, it, and even when I came back, I think I was still pre-recorded, so I wasn't live yet. Then at some point we went live, and then what happened was the merger between Sirius and XM. And when that happened, there was a lot of uh, personnel changes, and they brought a lot of the XM people from D.C. up here, and they moved stuff around. They, they, they got rid of channels. They got rid of shows, and my show got lost in the shuffle, so that my show got pulled. Then months went by. I don't remember exactly how many. It could have been three. It could have been six, but months went by, and then I guess they weren't happy with what changes were made, and so they ended up putting the same people back in the same position they were. They started bringing back some of the same shows and channels, and so I was offered the show again. And so from that point, I started it again, and, and, and I had been going ever since. you know. But So because of all those things, I never really know what my start date was of like when I first started the show and stuff like that. So it's like it's everything else I've done. I can pretty much tell you the beginning and end, but this one I don't even know. So. <laughs> is rap out of is rap is out of control? Is that a, do you feel it's a similar show to the halftime? Yeah, rap is out of control is is pretty much a continuation of what we do on half on halftime or did on halftime. Difference is that instead of a two and a half hour show, it's two hours. Um, instead of having to be play clean music, it's it's dirty versions. And the only thing I kind of because I had the two shows, what I would do differently was even though the music might have been very similar, I kind of started making halftime a little bit more of the incubator and rappers out control more of the main stage. And so because of the fact that you know 
we're on Hip Hop Nation, and the next channel over is Shade Forty Five, you know, which is Eminem's channel. So it's like you know, that means at that time it meant like you know Fifty Cent in the game and like all these major big artists. And so I didn't want to just be playing like the most obscure name. I was like, I wanted to play the best of what was out there, both indie, but also major label stuff. So I kind of looked at the serious show as being more of like, okay, like you want to come up to this show, then you actually have to have done something. It can't be just like, Oh, Hey, I'm an MC. Let me come up. Whereas with halftime, I'd kind of let you do that as long as I like the music and music's good. I right, come up to halftime. That's going to be your, your starting point, you know? And then if I see you continuing to do stuff and you kind of grind it out and, and, and stop, making a little bit more noise then i'll I'll bring you up to the serious show which to me i was trying to make as like the bigger the next step up so now halftime's gone you know i've i've, I've probably st- stepped back a little bit from that thought and and let some more people come up here that i might not have when i had halftime still going but again it's just for me it has to be about the music so it's like if you're not making music i don't like there's no reason for you to come up here when someone submits music to you or someone or you hear music mm-hmm. what what are you listening for i mean a dopey is i mean how, how i guess how important how important is content yeah i mean for me it's like it's it's about the the beat has to catch me first you know i have to actually hear music that has my head bopping because you always nine times out of ten you hear the music before you hear the vocals right so it's like i have to be into the beat the beat has to be banging and then once the vocals start then it's like then I'm, now I'm checking out for for the, the sound of the voice, the delivery. You know, the, can, can the kid rhyme? If you know, you can show, you can tell when someone's nervous. And it's like, all right, they're not ready. They're not, you know, they're not ready. Turn them off. You know, but um, for me, it's first the beat, and then and then the rhymes. The content for me, it's like I'm not gonna say it doesn't matter, but it's it's more about the the execution of it. You know, and I, and I say that to say this. A lot of times, you know, people preach about you know we need more positive music you know and not that we don't but to me onyx throw your guns in the air is a classic hip-hop song you know what I'm saying but when you think about what they're talking about like you know they're talking about guns you know what I'm saying so just because someone is talking about something negative doesn't necessarily mean that it should be shunned you know what I'm saying so it's all about basically the execution and delivery and how you put together the song so i don't care you know, if it's a song about if it's like the making of the movie Scarface, as long as it's done dope and and you know it's creative, then then I'm gonna play it. You know, what I'm saying so. It's not just about. And at the same time, I'm not gonna play something that's positive just because it's positive. If it's whack, you right, know, what I'm right, saying yeah. like if someone's like talking about God for the whole song, but like can't rhyme or can't be on beat, it's not getting played. So it's like it's not. I'm not playing something that because it's positive or because it's negative. I'm playing something because it's actually a, a well put together song. You obviously hear a ton, I imagine, a ton of music every week, every day. Uh, and then sometimes I feel like, okay, so for example, uh, when I, being a positive hip-hop, mm-hmm. when I went on my Black Star kick, yes. uh, so I was, so I remember in fifth grade, I played Self-Destruction as a song for to present to my class. Okay. I can't tell you what I was presenting exactly, mm-hmm. but, and then I went and I played a lot, and then like sixth grade, I was listening to a lot of Public Enemy, and then I went through a phase of just like, it was commercial. It was on the radio. Mm-hmm. Uh, it must be whack, or they sold out, whatever, whatever. Right. And then in hindsight, you listen to like Big Pun was incredible. You know, in hindsight, right? Right. Um, so you, so, so you feel like, so some, so I felt like I lost a lot. Like I talked to a friend, I lost a lot of actually like what was really good music gotcha. back then. Do you ever feel that that because you're listening to so much music and you know your your mind is set sure. on your show that you're you, you're not seeing as much or you're not hearing as much good music as you possibly could 
Yeah. Well, I mean, I'll give you an example of not not the exact same thing that you're saying, but similar is the fact that um, I just did actually um, uh, a, a DJ set on Funk Master Flex's uh, Five Minutes of Funk episode that he does, and I played um, the OC Big L Dangerous record that the B minus produced, and I said it at the very end of the at the end of the set. I was like, I did not like that record when it first came out, hmm. and I told Mr. Walt that you know who produced it because he had sampled Daisy Lady, and at the time that in that era of like '97. I was looking for like the next create. I wanted to hear the next creative loop that I hadn't heard before. And so when I heard Daisy Lady, I'm like, oh, I'm like, come on. How are you going to use Daisy Lady? Like it's been used so many times. Like, you know, no, no. And so just because of that fact, it made me shun away from that song where in hindsight, that song was incredible. Like it was a great, it was a dope use of Daisy Lady on that song with, with dope drums and, and, OC and Big L killed it. Like the way they delivered this, the flow on it was like just a classic song. And so it took me, I don't know how long it took me to get over that, but it took me some time to kind of look past the fact that it was Daisy Lady and open up my mind and be like, you know, that's just a dope song regardless. And so sometimes, yeah, you definitely have to like kind of step, step out of your box to be like, you know what? Like it's more than just that. It's, you gotta really appreciate it for what it is. And so, um, there's not many other examples like that, but there's definitely been a few things where it's like because of whatever reason I kind of like overlooked it. But I always I always try to give for the most part like an open air to to everything, you know. But also being aware of my platform, and so if I hear something that's like blatantly commercial, but I like it, I might like it and not play it you know, here, you know, I might play it like, you know, at a club or something like that. It's, it's just, you also have to know where you're at at different times and know like what, what, what you're playing is, is meant for a, a particular audience. You know what I'm saying? So that, that's, that's important. Do you have a, like a go-to record or records that you kind of like display for yourself to kind of, I guess, maybe reset your, your ears or reset your, the cake? Nah, I, I don't particularly have a record like that to go to, but like I'm, I'm constantly um, listening to, mixes uh at home you know like when i'm cleaning or i'm you know doing dishes whatever anything i'm doing at home i'll throw on a mix <clears throat> whether it's mostly mine because i like to like kind of analyze what i've done in the past but um it could be one of Riz's or you know and where was in my iphone at the moment like i always keep it full of mixes and i just like I, i'm always studying and i'm always analyzing and so that to me is like refreshing you know just to kind of like listen to something i might listen to last week's show you know but then i might go back and listen to something i did like 10 years ago you know and i, I like to listen to a lot of throwback mixes i do of like 80s music and stuff like that because to me that i guess that would be the biggest reset for me is like listening to 80s hip-hop you know what i'm saying because that to me is like the pinnacle of kind of when it was like i don't know something like refreshing about the 80s hip late 80s hip-hop when in that golden era where it was just like everything was kind of blossoming and like you had all these crazy new groups coming out and styles coming out. And so that was like my childhood era, so to speak. So I always kind of go back to that, those mixes to like really get that, that, that reset before I kind of, like, I guess, go back in something else. I just want to go talk about influences. Mm -hmm. uh, we're at a point where rap is the most popular genre right. out there. So, and you also have, you have kids who are growing up listening to rap mm -hmm. versus growing up listening to like, right. God, you know, rock, Casey, 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 Casey. <laughs> uh, from a, from a sound perspective, yes. um, and from beats, 
uh, how do you think the the beat creation has changed with, let's say, the older generation versus this generation who is creating hip hop music, but their influence is hip hop music. What are you hearing? Well, it's kind of a it's a two part question or answer here because my analogy first on the progression of hip hop music is this: like when you look at, you know hip-hop that was being done in the park it was being done over break beats you know the djs were cutting up breaks so when the when it became time to make records no one really knew how to make a beat it was more of like let's rhyme over that break and so legally you can't do that so then you had bands the sugar hill band you had pumpkin you had these musicians that were replaying the breaks so all that old enjoy and like Sugar Hill, you know, was like basically like live instrumentation. A lot of it just replaying breaks and popular music. So that was like the first era. Then you got into like the drum machines, the Lindrums, and and you know, and SP, uh, Roland eight hundred eights, nine hundred nines. So you had that that era of like just drum programming. You know, the the Larry Smith Run DMC stuff, you know, Houdini stuff, and then like uh, Mantronics and all that stuff. So you had all these drum programmings, Davey D. And then you had Molly, and you had sampling, and you had the late 80s. And when sampling came around, it, it, it took it a step further. So now it's getting better and better and better. Now, after the late 80s into the early 90s, now you have, like, the next set of producers. You have your premieres, your Pete Rocks, your large professors. You have these guys that are that are not necessarily just, like— looping the way Molly was looping and putting stuff together. Now they're actually like chopping, you know, and they're filtering and they're, they're actually changing the loop, the, the samples that they're taking and moving them around. And so it, to me, it's always progressed and progressed and progressed and up until let's say like the mid nineties, you know, then after that point of the mid nineties, it went back to like the whole kind of like commercial era and i'll use puffy as the best example because he was probably the biggest at the time of someone that was like just straight up looping the most popular records he can find you know whether it was diana ross or you know the police missing you and like he was just basically going for like the biggest impact you can make as opposed to like the most creative record he can make and so that was kind of like starting to see the downfall of the creativity of of hip-hop in my opinion and then it started going you know down and then you started having other regions step up and making important music like, you know, the South, like Atlanta was, was became huge for, for hip hop. And they became so huge that New York started taking a, a back seat to that. And so then New York artists then start thinking, well, wait, maybe we should make music like that. And so like then they start making music like that. Now years go by and now the whole there's no you're starting to lose the identity of of New York, and you're starting to like now, now New York sounding like Atlanta, you know. So now, what's that? What that? What that? What that's doing is decades are going by. So now the younger generation who's coming up is listening to these artists, and so you have artists, let's say like um, like an ASAP Rocky, that or, or French Montana even that like are from New York, but their music doesn't necessarily sound like New York music you know it just sounds more like you know some people might say it sounds more southern it's got like that kind of a trap sound to it so now it's just like so people growing up even in new york it's like they're they're hearing now what they feel is current hip-hop and it's that style of music you know so 
and it's just so it's just so far back to me from where it where it's gone already you know what I'm saying so it's like to me the pinnacle kind of reached its peak in the mid 90s both for lyricism and for, for for beats you know and now it's like outside of a few you know most of the stuff that you hear on commercial radio is just really watered down gibberish you know it's like the, the MCs aren't saying anything it's all basically like strip club music and um and the beats are just like they might they might bump in your car but it's like there's no it just doesn't it doesn't it doesn't speak to me you know what i'm saying it's like so now you know i i just stick with my lane which is the independent underground scene because to me that's the continuation of where it left off in the mid 90s the people in the indie scene are the ones that are carrying the torch to me for hip hop the ones that are actually still caring about the lyrics they write the ones that are still caring about the music they select and like and, and how it's being put together and and you know making beats and stuff like that so it's it's you know for those that are just coming up now in this era if you're only listening to commercial radio it's like you're really getting just one angle one dimension of kind of like what hip hop has to offer you do you think that's going to break i mean do you think there's going to be a point where they kind of just i mean because it seems like those guys i mean you I, you talk to enough people and it just um seems like the independent scene means longevity I mean, in terms of the artists right. versus like the commercial scene with what you're talking, they're, they're just one hit wonders. Right. I mean, do you think we'll get to the point where it would just, that would break and you know go what? back? I, it's hard to say. It's, I mean, that, that's the one thing about hip hop is that it's always been about what's new, what's next. You know, hip hop has never been fond of what's already been here. Everyone wants hip hop for itself. You know, back when it was like the, the you know, taping off of Red Alert or Marley or even the Stretch and Bob era, everyone wanted to have the joint for themselves. They didn't want anyone else to have it. They wanted to be the only one with it. They wanted to feel special. And that's always what hip hop has been about, was about feeling special. And so that's the downfall, the downside of hip hop is that we don't really respect what came before us. And so everyone's just looking for what's next, what's next. You know, you know, they they see, you know, videos from like, master p and them and and to me that's that's why i think they became so big in new york was not because of the music but because of how they were branded when you look at the videos you saw the money you saw the cars you and we didn't have that you know we weren't there wasn't new york artists that were like that were popping like that so it was like people are checking these guys out like yo like who are these guys and why are they popping you know so people want to be down with something that they feel is bigger than they are or better than they are so it became that thing where it's just like everyone kind of like wanted to be down with and affiliated with what was popping so with that it's like you know the independent scene yeah there's there's a there's a longer road maybe but the down the, the, the flip side to that is that it's a cheap road you know so it's like not many can survive that long road, especially coming out nowadays. Because you know, when we came out nonfiction, it was the '90s when there was there was you know kind of pre-internet or just just starting. So you know, we had there was still you still had to kind of like be somewhere. You still had to go and do the open mics. You still had to become you had you had to be, be a presence on the scene. Whereas now it's like you really don't have to go anywhere. You can just become a phenomenon by putting out a YouTube video, you know, and just getting going viral. So the, the the avenues are different now for people to to succeed, and so yes, there's a lot of one hit wonders you know on the radio that you're not going to remember five years from now, but you know they might make enough money in that 
that one or two years to 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 live for quite a while off that off the money they make you know um doing the shows and and whatever spins they're getting you know but um that's another thing too it's just like you know when you think about classic songs and and music you know i always say to people because i i don't know a lot of these mainstream artists music what their hits are you know it's like what are their hits it's like they seem to have they seem to be popular but a lot of them don't seem to have hits they just seem to be popular because they just know how they can relate to the crowd the kids can relate to them but like i don't hear their music at games sports games i don't hear their music i still hear you know house of pain jump around i still hear uh naughty by nature hip-hop parade it's like those are classics. Those are songs that like are going to stand the test of time and are like cemented in in every fabric of our lives. You turn on the TV and it's in commercials. It's in, you know, and it's just like I don't see a lot of this music that's happening now translating to further than where it is right now. You know, I don't see it being anthems at, at ball games. I don't see it being, you know, licensed for like. Uh, an apple product commercial you know it's just like it's it kind of seems like it's here for the moment it's good club music and that's kind of it so do you think and i i I believe it's probably the answer is no i believe the answer is no but do you think hip-hop culture is in danger or better yet do you think maybe the rap element yeah sure well i don't say it's in danger i mean again because there's more than enough hip-hop artists out there Hip hop culture has never has never has never been in danger, and I don't believe ever will be because there's enough of us here that know the difference between the culture and the music. You know, what I'm saying that's 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 something I actually had a debate with somebody not too long ago who was trying to say how Cardi B was good for hip hop culture, and I'm like, no, I was like, you know, you can. He's trying to say like because she, you know, was number one on Billboard and this, that, and the third. Like that's good for hip hop. I'm like. That's debatable. I was like, but definitely not good for hip hop culture. I was like, there's a, you know, and he's like, oh, what? Like, she, she, she raps, doesn't she? That, that's hip hop culture. I was like, no, it's not. There's two totally different things. And that's not an opinion. That's a fact. Rapping is an element of hip hop culture. But just because you rap does not mean you are part of hip hop culture. It just means you're, you're a rapper. If, if, if Justin Bieber wants to start rapping, doesn't mean he's hip hop part of hip hop culture. It just means he he's rapping. You know what I'm saying? It's like same thing with DJing. It's like there's DJs that that don't play hip hop that play like house music or EDM. Just just because you're a DJ doesn't mean you're automatically part of hip hop culture. It's about what you do that makes you part of the culture. And so for those that you can tell that care about their craft and care about the events they do and stuff like that, then those are the ones that you can say yes. Like he is definitely part of hip hop culture. Like this guy is you know is down. And then the ones that are, like, just here to kind of, like, make up a hit and then, like, you know, kind of disappear next week, you know, those guys are just rappers. Last question. Mm-hmm. You look at all the elements of hip-hop. You could say rap music. Rap is the element that represents it now. Right. You're a DJ, but you're obviously well-versed and, and passion for sure. hip-hop. If you were to pick one element to be the, quote-unquote, commercial representative, Mm-hmm. of hip-hop would it be what would it be i mean it probably it would have to be rap just because you know it, it's it's the most successful you know out of out of all the elements you know it's like graph doesn't get it's really just you know deserves it's like there's not as many popular graph writers that are going mainstream you know work you know djs the kind of same thing it's like everyone plays the backseat to a rapper you know rapper is by far the most important in your face element of of hip-hop you know, culture is, is the rapper. That's that's the one that that 
gets the most shine. That's, that's the one that's on, you know, the videos. That's the one that's on the, the, the talk shows. That's the one that's on the award shows. It's like it's the rapper, you know what I'm saying? So it's like that would have to be the, the, the representation if you had to narrow it down to one. He's a member of the Rock City crew. He's a radio host at SiriusXM. Uh, he's a manager. Uh, it was a great, great, great and honor to talk to him. It's DJ Eclipse. Uh, thank you so much for joining me on the live here with Tim Ryan. Yeah, thank you, Tim. Thank you so much, yes, man. Yes, sir. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a rumble, and money got crushed in the rubble For thinking the funk inside the concrete jungle DJ Clips on the cup, a bill with him Suck MCs, well you can go to hell with him Well this is a warhead, it's be getting on here The five percent nation, the brothers of the law here Whether he good or not, he's office to put a pop He ain't alive, but he got cut in the butcher shop You can't touch the mic, you don't deserve to If he didn't learn to, then he getting burned to The kings and queens are rebuilding they throne With hardcore drums, it's a tale of Jay's own Suckers of petrol so they better let go Cause I'm the human lightning bolt like electro Y'all ain't stepping up Cause y'all ain't deaf enough Yo DJ Clips just got the record up Dirt and God put it to a hearse. Suckers try to battle, but they get their heads burst. And hey, y'all couldn't move me. I cut them like sushi. The word is a gun, and it'll spray like a ooze. I built with the guards until knowledge is born on them. It took a little while for the science to dawn on them. You stay like a barber. My blade was just sharper. The son that was born was the same as the father. None of y'all could come before me or come after me. You fucking with past, and it could be a catastrophe. Knowledge is infinite. You couldn't live with it. Suckers will fade and get played like an instrument. Nothing can harm me. Why try bomb? You could have fuck around with pads with the arms. 32 bars of death will shut them up. DJ Clips on the wheel, so cut it up.